morning. We'll be reading from Genesis chapters 2 and 3. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome to uh, the Leawood campus of Christ Community. I'm Tom and uh, I have the privilege of serving on the teaching team. So we want to welcome you on this warm morning. Thank you for being here. Well, as a kid, I remember uh, imagining that when I grew up on that day, I would be able to do whatever I wanted to do. Now, maybe this was accented by the fact that I was number six of seven kids. So I had at least six bosses over me all the time. I dreamed of a day when I had unfettered, boundless freedom. I could play with my friends all the time. I wouldn't have to go to school. And for some reason, the epitome of the good life for an eight-year-old was like eating all the ice cream I could ever stand wherever I wanted. There was no parent to tell me what to do, no teacher to tell me what to do. That's what stirred my eight-year-old imagination and nurtured the deepest longings of my heart. You know, I never recall entertaining this thought that perhaps my vision of unfettered, boundless freedom might one day well mean regret and pain down the road. If there is a dominant idea, it captures our cultural quest for the good life. It may well be stated best in the cultural mantra of you do you. In other words, you take care of you, I'll take care of me. Sounds pretty good. Just don't hurt anybody. Mind your own business and do no harm. And of course, this you-do narrative of our day is really appealing, isn't it? Because there's something about the advocacy of boundless, unfettered freedom that draws us. And clearly, the motivation not to do harm to others is a good thing. New York Times really gave an insightful critique of this you-do cultural narrative. 
The article is entitled, get this, How You Do You Perfectly Captures Our Narcissistic Culture. Author writes, in a world where the selfie has become our dominant art form, phrases like you do you provide, listen to this, very insightful, a philosophical scaffolding for our ever-evolving, even more complicated and mysterious narcissism. And this is the New York Times. Instead of serving the establishment, and they list God or religion or social norms or something, you do you empowers, quote, the individual. And notice, regardless of how shallow that individual is. I think the New York Times writer's onto something. Because we repeatedly hear, if you just do you and do no harm, all will be right with the world and you will discover happiness. But is that true? Now, of course, there's some truth in it. Individual freedom is a good thing, don't you think? Because without freedom, creativity is crippled, service becomes suffocating slavery, and societies inevitably become oppressive regimes. And our desire to do no harm is also a good thing. Let's applaud that. Because if we all did no harm, wouldn't you say the world would be in a better place today? But the question is, is that enough? And what really happens when you do you? Now, let's think back. This you do you idea is not new. It's actually a really old, old, old idea. In fact, as we'll see this morning, it was first planted in a garden long ago. And it led to the greatest tragedy the world has ever known. If you brought a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Now, this morning, we are going to continue a series we began a few weeks ago that is examining the cultural narratives of our time and comparing them with the biblical text, particularly Genesis 1 through 3. If we miss getting Genesis 1 through 3 right, we get the entire Bible wrong. So it's a very important text for us to examine. Now, as we enter to Genesis, Genesis 1 through 3 might be described in sort of a Charles Dickens way, the best of times and the worst of times. Genesis 1 and 2 is the best of times. Everything is completely awesome, right? God's integral creation is perfect. But then... In Genesis chapter 3, everything is a total wreck. When evil and sin and death enter God's good world, there is massive disintegration of His integral design. Now, if you want to be an important theologian, they call this, theologians call it, the fall. But really, the fall in English sounds like a mere stumble. But this is a headlong plunge. It is serious. What we find in our text this morning is that humankind and it's our relationship with God is disintegrated, our relationship with one another is disintegrated, and our relationship with the material world is disintegrated, that we are deeply broken. I was reminded of this when I grabbed my cup of coffee and left my home early in the morning on my way to the office. I often turn on sort of news talk radio to kind of find out where the traffic is and what's going on. And... The DJs of the morning talk show, maybe you heard this, it's a very popular one in Kansas City, 
uh, we're talking about prison life and the whole week and uh, emphasizing what it's like to be in prison and being out of prison and the challenges of that. And they invited a guest on the show. I don't know who this guest is and what he said. Well, statistics can lie. So it seems large to me, but even if it's close to accurate, it's stunning. So you ready for this? This is what he said. I wrote it down. He said, around 100 million, that's 100 million, 100 million Americans have now or have had in their lifetimes some kind of criminal record. Wow. And it is true that the fall, human brokenness, is the only theological idea that is truly empirically verifiable every day. Right? It's like we see it everywhere. So humans are broken. But what happened? In our text this morning, we are going to see what happened, and we are going to uncover three gems of wisdom that will critique the popular you-do-you narrative. As we enter into the Bible, one of the themes of the Old Testament is this wise life. So wisdom is a primary theme. What we're going to discover this morning in Genesis 3, in our text, are three gems of wisdom. These gems of wisdom flow from the text, beginning in chapter 2 to 3, and these are the three. First, we're going to look at the gem of wisdom that God's boundaries protect us. God's boundaries protect us. On the heels of that, as we enter Genesis 3, we are going to uncover the second gem of wisdom, and that is that Satan's lies entice us. So God's boundaries protect us, Satan lies entice us. And then as we build to the end of our text this morning, we're going to see that God's love pursues us. So that's the flow of the text. This is where we're going this morning. First, God's boundaries protect us. If you look at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, and it was read for us this morning beautifully, God establishes wise moral boundaries for all of humankind. Notice the text, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God is compellingly clear here. God says, you have complete freedom. (laughs) Go enjoy, explore, romp through the garden, except for one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, don't go there. Do not eat it. See, not only is God crystal clear in the prohibition, you will notice in the text explicitly God is crystal clear on the consequences of breaking that prohibition. If you do it, you will die. See, boundaries are hard for all of us. One of my favorite memories of our kids growing up is our daughter, Sarah. Uh, She's an amazing young woman now. But like all of us, she had trouble with boundaries. One of the things that she repeatedly struggled with, I remember this, she loved our stereo receiver and all our sound equipment. And she had this obsessive thing, not only for her little binkies, but for stereos. I don't know why that was, but she loved the knobs and the lights and all that. And my wife finally said to her, you know, Liz said to her, hey, these are off limits to you. One morning, Liz finds Sarah, right, on the carpet playing with the, the stereo receiver buttons. And Liz gently removes Sarah's hand from the knob. And she says, classic, let's just, no, Sarah, no. True story. Sarah looks up at her with these chocolate brown eyes, puts her other hand on the stereo, and she looks in her mom's eyes. She says, no, mommy, no. 
Isn't that true? You don't have to be young to say that, right? To feel it. That's how we act. No, God, no. No, God, no. Isn't that how we deal with boundaries? When it comes to honoring God's standards for sexual purity or for forgiving others who have hurt us or being sacrificially generous with our money or wealth, we are quick to say to God, no, God, no, no, God, no. Off limits. We often feel God's boundaries limit our freedom rather than allow us to live more fully into our freedom. And as we will see here in Genesis 3, as it unveils before us, is that boundless human freedom, on the other hand, will eventually prove to be the ultimate slavery, the slavery to sin. The Holy Scriptures remind us the very foundation of wisdom. Remember, the foundational theme here is the wisdom of God. This is a very important part of the Old Testament theme, to live a wise life. And the book of Proverbs is compacted on how do we live wisely. One of the themes of the book of Proverbs, if you've read it, begins in Proverbs 1-7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, the fear of the Lord can have a sense of like fear as we think of cowering in the corner because God is awesome, but the primary focus is to respect His creator boundaries as His creature. The idea of the fear of God in wisdom literature is respecting God's boundaries. Respecting God as the creator and us as his creatures. That as his creatures, our creator has authority over us and authority to establish boundaries. That's the idea, the primary idea of the fear of God in wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And the fear of God is the beginning of the good life. Proverbs is asserting here a really big idea that the Genesis writer is building on. That is, we need to consider this. If we don't respect God's boundaries, we can't even get to first base in a truly good and wise life. Isn't it true for all of us, it's true for me, that God's moral boundaries can at times seem rather restrictive rather than protective, right? I remember particularly as a young teenager and as a young man, knowing God's boundaries for sexual purity, right? They seem more restrictive then than protective. But after 35 years of marriage, I am thankful for them. And I now can see more clearly how good those boundaries truly are for me, my family, and the world and society. God's boundaries are not there to hinder us, but to help us. They are protective, and you see this in the garden, not only for us, but for our world. These inescapable boundaries will inevitably expose the you-do narrative for what it truly is. It is deeply impoverished, it is truly foolish, and it is often perilous. So what the Genesis writer wants us to understand, first, looking at Genesis 2, is that God's boundaries protect us. But notice now, as we enter into Genesis 3, verse 1, the second gem of wisdom that Satan's lies entice us. Now, I want you to notice where God is ever-present in Genesis 1 and 2, suddenly God moves back in the periphery. This is really important in the Hebrew writing. Chapter 3 is not first about God. He will show up later, quote-unquote. But we are introduced to a new character in our story. The Genesis writer goes out of his way in verse 1, if you have your Bible open, to emphasize the creatureliness of the serpent. Yet, the subtle irony introduced to us in the text 
is that the serpent is not acting very creaturely at the moment. Literally, the idea here of the tone of the text is there is something creepy going on. We know that in English. Something is going on here more than meets the eye. Now, in verse 1, we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This word crafty and cunning in English is from a Hebrew word that is primarily used in all of the Old Testament to describe a positive thing of wisdom. The word literally can be translated wisdom or wise, but the translators into English are right in this case because something else is going on. This word now has an ominous shadow in the context that we are going to continually feel. Remember, meaning words have meaning based on context. So the idea here is there's an ominous shadow cast over this generally good word. And it is right. It is cunning. It is crafty. Again, the Hebrew writer wants, there's something creepy going on here. And in verse 2, the serpent, which is specifically described as a beast of the field, now speaks to the woman. In a 21st century context that is very anti-supernatural, this kind of mindset may seem to all of us a bit fanciful, a bit mythical. But as we will see later in the narrative, this is anything but fanciful to the Genesis writer. This is as real as rain. Something the writer wants us to know, something supernatural is occurring here. Something unusual is occurring here. We might say it in English, much is, more is going here than meets the eye at first. Now, the Old Testament writer Job gives us a window into this text because Job allows us to peek behind the curtain of space-time, and he gives us a peek into the invisible war that is raging. Like the writer Job, the Genesis writer is alerting us right away in the narrative to the fact that planet Earth has now become the front lines of a cosmic battle of epic proportion. And he wants us to know, in verse 1, someone beside the serpent is involved here. Someone is pulling the strings. So I want us to notice how the Genesis writer unpacks here the tempter's strategy. What we see emerging in verses 1 through 7 is a threefold progression of Satan's oldest and perhaps most successful playbook. He pulled it on Adam and Eve, and he pulls it on us. And you may be here this morning with a lot of doubt. You may say, I don't want to doubt God, I doubt Satan. And you may have a hard time believing in Satan. I understand that. But let me just assure you, based on the authority of God's Word, that Satan does not have a hard time believing in you. He knows who you are. He knows your vulnerabilities. And the writer of Scripture wants us to know those who are wise will be alert to his presence and how he works. So how does he work? This threefold progression flows from the text. First, Satan, disguised in the serpent role, begins to raise doubt. That's the first thing he does, raise doubt. The first step here is raising doubts about God. But you'll notice it's not God's existence. God's existence is not denied. His character is questioned, particularly His benevolent character, His good character. Now, notice at the end of verse 1, the serpent and his verbal communication with the woman starts with a question. Do not miss that. And in spoken words, we hear intonation, and in written words, we don't. So, let me just put a bit of intonation on this. He says, did God actually say? 
you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? See, it looks like an innocent question, doesn't it? It sounds like an innocent question. You with me? But it isn't an inquiry at all. The servant isn't curious about what God has said. He's not seeking an answer. The language is laced to provoke action. Make no mistake, the serpent is not confused. He is after Adam and Eve's lives. He's after them because they uniquely image God, the God he despises. Satan cannot destroy God, but he can attempt to attack God and hurt God by destroying what God wonderfully made and so loves. That's you and me. So rather than wisely dismissing the question, this this is where I think the universe was on tiptoes and holding its breath. Right here. Rather than dismissing this serpent, Satan, or or, uh, Eve, there is a difference, Eve does not really know who she's dealing with here. How could she? Rather than dismissing the question and the questionnaire, the questioner, notice with me how she engages him in conversation, or the serpent. She repeats back to the serpent what God has said, or does she? Notice at the end of verse 2, or verse 3, she embellishes what God commanded in chapter 2, verse 17. That is not incidental or accidental in the text. She adds another prohibition, not only to eat of the fruit tree, but we can't even touch it. And I want to suggest to you that she's already wrestled with the prohibition. And Satan knows it, and he finds a window into her heart and mind. And he shows up. I think she was struggling with the command already. Satan knew her vulnerability, he knows mine, he knows yours. Now notice, he is raising doubt so that Eve swallows the bait. Once Satan has raised plausible doubt about God's goodness in her mind, in verse 4, then he slips in the hook. The lie, you will not surely die. Now, both Eve and Satan know this is a direct contradiction to God's command. Both of them know that. But Satan cunningly offers a plausible reason for God's prohibition. Basically, he's saying, if I may give a paraphrase, God has his self-interest in mind, not you, not yours, Eve. You deserve true happiness. You too can know and enjoy what God knows. In fact, if you do you, you will be like God. You see how this text is garnished with irony. In chapter 1, Eve is already like God. She is made in God's image. Yet the serpent here is telling her, that's not enough. You need more. He's saying, just you do, you, Eve. Satan's presence and influence, which the Bible clearly asserts, makes the you-do narrative very problematic for each of us. Why is that? Because we never just do us. The you-do narrative does not take into account that someone else is ever present who will co-opt your will to accomplish his will. 
Satan is so crafty and smart, he uses the you-do-you deception to get you and I to do his will without us even being aware of it. And maybe, maybe the evil one is whispering in your ear this morning. Come on. Did God really say that in his word? Nah. God's holding out on you. God doesn't really care. Maybe you are struggling with that. And I find in my life as a follower of Jesus, one of the greatest temptations I struggle with is unanswered prayer, quote-unquote. Waiting on God a long time. Front door of temptation often is unanswered prayer in my mind. And maybe yours as well. Maybe you're single and are praying for a Christian spouse and you're waiting and waiting and waiting. Maybe you're praying for positive changes in your marriage or maybe you're praying for a prodigal child or grandchild to come home. Maybe you're in a really difficult job. doesn't pay very well. Struggling to pay the bills. And you pray and pray for an different job that's a better fit and provides more for your family. And you wait and wait and wait. And the evil one plants these thoughts in your mind and heart. Right? God doesn't really care. <laughs> He's not there for you. Take things into your own hands. Maybe you're struggling with boundaries of integrity. Maybe it's sexual purity. And you're hearing the whispering of the evil one. You do, you deserve to be happy. God's playing you for the fool. So you're doubting God's caring presence, his true goodness, his temptation's front door that allows Satan to have a greater influence in your life and mine. The first step. First step is raising doubt. But on its heels is the second step, and that's arousing desire. One thing as you study this text, you'll notice the emphasis on human desire. It's just all over the place. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, right? See that picture? And that it was a delight to the eyes, and it was able to make you wise. Do you notice the repeated theme of sensory desire? See, taste, touch, intellectual prowess, be wise. Martyred German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer had such brilliant insight into the tempter's strategy and how desire is so central. I have a quote from his writing. I want to read it quite carefully and slowly because it is the finest thing written on temptation in the history of the Christian church apart from the Bible. He writes, in our members there is a slumbering inclination towards desire that is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money or finally that strange desire for the beauty of the world of nature. Joy in God is in the course of being extinguished in us and at this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real, and the only reality is the devil. Now, notice what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says here. I'm going to say it twice because it is absolutely brilliant. He's known for this quote more than any other quote. 
because it's so brilliant. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. At the point of temptation, Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but forgetfulness of God. Do you notice how God is completely absent in the first part of Genesis 3? Do you notice that? By the writer explicitly. The Hebrew writer is telling us something by God's initial, quote, absence in Genesis 3. Do not miss that. As temptation grip tightens on Eve, Eve forgets God. Eve's world is increasingly shrinking to the black hole of her all-consuming desire. God's presence, his prohibition is of no consequence, not even an afterthought. God becomes completely unreal to her at that moment. Uh, we read this in John's writing, 1 John 1.16. I call it the trifecta of sensory desire. It entices the human heart, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. All three lure Eve into Satan's bait. All three. Growing up in Minnesota, a land of 10,000 lakes and zillions of mosquitoes, I learned about fishing. I learned about it early. I'm not telling you I'm a great fisherman. Those who know me, you know, I catch a few now and then, but there are others here that are much greater than me. But I do know this. I've known this since I was this high. If you're going to catch fish, you have to offer the right bait at the right time at the right place. This is what Satan does to Eve. And this is what Satan does to you and me. He not only raises doubt in our mind, he rouses desires in our hearts, and then he presents the right bait at the right time at the right place. Satan is not only the master of lies, he's a master fisherman. But instead of fishing for fish, he fishes for you and me. He's relentless. He's really good at it. He's been doing it for a long, long time. C.S. Lewis in his masterful book, which I commend to you at the highest commendation, it's entitled The Screwtape Letters. And he emphasizes how Satan uses human desire as bait. Uncle Screwtape, in his story, the experienced demon writes to Wormwood, his young demonic apprentice. And listen to what he says. All we can do is to encourage humans to take pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. And notice what he says, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. What is Lewis saying? Wow. His brilliance is unbounded here. Satan's bait is always initially appealing, but it will prove hollow, empty, unsatisfying, and enslaving. The tempter's strategy against us, we know what it is. Raised out, aroused desire, and then third, rationalized disobedience. See, with doubt in her mind and desire in her heart, Eve takes the serpent's bait. Then in verse 6 we read, she took the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. It's hard to grasp, isn't it, what Eve was thinking at that moment? Clearly, the powers of her mental discrimination and discernment are being compromised by her intense desire. 
One thing I think is we can be pretty confident about is she is rationalizing her disobedience. I have little doubt that Eve convinces herself of the sincerity of her heart. I love that phrase. She was so sincere and the goodness of her motive in action. I've discovered this in my life, and I bet you have too, that when human will bends to human desire, it conjures up a host of persuasive reasons. When I sin against God and others, when I disobey, my mind is never more creative, never more engaged and brilliant than when I'm justifying sin in my life. The father of lies has Eve in the palm of his hand. The father of love is pushed to the margin of her conscience and consciousness. While Eve is willing to stop and doubt the thoughts of her mind, she is absolutely unwilling to stop and doubt her desires. This is instructive for us. Isn't it true that most of us are very willing to doubt the truth of God's word? We are much less willing to doubt our desires. And let me just say, as a follower of Jesus, it's not uncommon in our journey of faith for God's truth and our desires to collide with each other at the intersection of obedience. Sometimes my desires line up with God's desires. Sometimes they don't. Who gets the right of way? We convince ourselves that if we feel it, it must be true. If we want it, we should have it. And we rationalize our disobedience to get it. Desire itself becomes our God. The Apostle Paul gives us good news. He writes to the church at Corinth, we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes. So if we're going to avoid the tempter's snare, we need to know the evil one's strategy. We are not left into ignorance. God's word guides us. How does Satan work? This is how he works. He raises doubts in our mind. He arouses desires in our hearts. And he compromises our will by getting us to rationalize our disobedience. So let's be honest. The big problem of the you-do-you narrative is that you and I are not as smart as we think we are. You and I are not as strong or tough or resilient as we think we are. We were never designed to live on our own resources. You and I are not as wise as we think we are. At the heart of the you-do narrative is an intellectual and spiritual pride that sets up Satan's temptation. And C.S. Lewis was right. Pride is the ultimate vice, and spiritual pride is the most deadly. The New Testament writer reminds us, James, to wise up about temptation. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Desire, sin, death. God's boundaries, friends, protect us. Satan's lies entice us. But there is another gem of wisdom that comes in this text as it builds, and that is the Father's love keeps pursuing us. While the father of lies is the one that seeks to destroy us, the father of love woos us back to himself. Notice how in the narrative, after Adam and Eve swallow the serpent's bait and disobey God and become rebels against him, we read these words in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve's disobedience immediately led to their deep sense of shame that we feel today, right? 
but that's not all. In verses 8 through 10, they attempt to hide from God. Is that humorous? If not tragic, like we all do, like I do. And then they play the game, blame game to others. Yet what is most hopeful in this grand tragedy is that God does not abandon his disobedient, rebellious, rebellious creatures. Instead, he pursues them. Yes, he pursues them. And we'll see next week as the Genesis narrative continues, the very first hint of the gospel emerges in verse 15, that the seed of a woman, a person who had one day come to this sin-ravaged earth, would deal a mortal blow to the serpent, a mortal blow. In the midst of such a heavy dose of darkness in Genesis 3, and it is dark, there is this glimmer of light that emerges pointing us to the light of the world. Jesus himself, who took on human flesh, who did not succumb to Satan's many temptations, who died on a cross, who rose again, so that sin in the garden would not be the end of the human story. The good news of the gospel is a God who loves, a God whose love pursues us. Father's love who would give up his only son so that you and I might be forgiven and have new life and be saved through him. Have you embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, friend? If not, will you reach out in repentance and faith to him this morning? Jesus is there for you. He loves you. He loves you more than you can imagine. He is there in your doubts and fears and struggles and in your temptations. Will you reach out to him? Maybe you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you find yourself in temptation's firm grasp. You don't have to be a slave to sin or succumb to temptation. If you have deep patterns, you might need to see someone to help you. But you can experience forgiveness and true freedom and the empowerment to say no to temptation. Because freedom from enslavement to temptation increases as we grow in our spiritual formation in Christ. Hear me carefully. The more we grow in apprenticeship with Jesus, the more discerning we are to Satan's presence, his practices, and his lies. And his lies become less alluring when we're intimate with Jesus. Remember, while the father of lies will stab you in the back, he hates you. The father of love always has your back. So what steps do you take this week to grow in Christ? Maybe you'll become more disciplined in grace of a daily time of reading scripture and prayer. That's vital. Joining a community group, making Sunday morning a corporate worship priority. And maybe it's reading a book like Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Former philosopher and remarkable Christian and writer Dallas Willard at USC said, the thing he recommends most for Christian parents sending their students to any school is for them to read first and foremost the Screwtape Letters. He's right. Maybe that's a step for you. So let's be honest. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you and me, we're not as smart or as wise as we think we are. But the good news is we are loved more than we ever imagined. So as we conclude in prayer, let me suggest three one-sentence prayers that I want to encourage you to tuck into your mind and heart. Prayers I'm praying for me this week. First one, Lord, show me where this road ends. Show me where this road ends. This prayer applies weight to the brake pedal of your life and stops you from going places you don't want to go.
Secondly, Lord, remind me what I really want. Remind me what I really want. This prayer helps me put aside disordered heart loves and order my heart rightly. And third is the prayer Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, cover me with your protective love. It's not incidental that Jesus said what? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So will you do you? Or will you do Jesus? Which one will it be? Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to the evil one's ways and his presence. Open our ears to the good news of the gospel and deliver us from evil and the evil one, we pray. Amen.